Thank you for listening to the Keystone Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can visit us at mykeystonechurch.com. I wanted to take some time this morning just to address the, the unrest, the, uh, just kind of the turmoil that's been happening in our country over the last couple of weeks. We had, um, we had Pentecost Sunday, and then Catherine and I were gone last week, so we really haven't had a chance to, to dig into all of this stuff. And so um, in as, as kid-friendly a way as I can, I want to kind of talk through just some of the approach of what I think God is doing and what I think we can do in the middle of this season. So in Joshua 9, there's a group of people called the Gibeonites. And so Joshua, they're, they're taking the promised land and they're going after it. They've already come out of Egypt. They've already conquered a lot of the different lands that God's given to them. And so the Gibeonites have heard everything about Israel and how how competent they are in warfare and all the amazing things that God's done for them. So the Gibeonites come up with a plan and they, they get rags, they get crusty dry bread, they get wineskins that are all broken and they get like worn down horses and they go visit the Israelites. Now the thing is, they're literally like just over the next hill, like they're on the other side of the next mountain that Israel is about to cross but they act like we've come from such a far land and look at how worn out all of our stuff is and just make a covenant with us. And Israel's like, how do we know who you guys are? You know, why should we make a covenant with you? And the Gibeonites literally, they're like, look at how dry our bread is. Look at how broken our wineskins are and our rags and our horses. Like we've clearly come from such a long way just because we've heard the great things about your God, make a covenant with us. And so Israel, makes a covenant with that, them. And it, here's what it says. It says, Joshua 9:14. it says, So the men took some of their provisions, meaning they were inspecting all this stuff, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And I think it's really interesting that in the middle of all this story, that verse is included. They took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. So they ended up making a covenant with the, the Gibeonites, and then they find out that they're from the next hill over, and they've been deceived. And so some of the people are like, well, what do we do? They lied to us. Should we just go and take them all down? And, and the, the response is, no, we've made a covenant with them. We have to honor that. And so what's interesting is you go a little bit later on in, in 2 Samuel 9, there's a famine in the land and David is trying to determine why this famine is in the land. And apparently at some point in time, King Saul had gone and had killed many of the Gibeonites and had broken that covenant. And so when David inquires of the Lord, why is this famine happening in the land? The revelation is it's because this covenant with them was broken. Here's the interesting piece of that. God is so about us honoring covenant that even a covenant that was, that came, that was originated from deceit, even a covenant that originally, if they had actually sought the Lord's counsel, he probably would not have had them get into that covenant. And yet, because they were, God held this, the country accountable to maintaining that covenant that they had agreed to with this people, to the extent that when it was broken, there had to be something done to make it right. We live in a country 
that says all men are created equal. And in many ways, that is a covenant that we have made. We have said all men are created equal. And yet we, we have seen the division and the chaos and the struggle that has happened in our country since slavery and onwards. And what's, what's so hard about right now is you see this covenant that we've made and you see right now we've had this season of, of all this pain. We've had this season of, I mean, it started with the stress of being locked up, which was already building up tension. And then you've got this other source of injustice and this tension that's been sitting there for a long time. And all of a sudden it all comes to a head together all at once. And we find ourselves in a pivotal moment. Someone, someone I know said, you don't expect to wake up and find yourself in a defining moment in history. And yet that's exactly where we found ourselves. We have found ourselves in a pivotal turning point of our nation, I believe of our world. We've never seen this kind of, of, of an outbreak. We've never seen this level of turmoil um, other than, I mean, going back to like the Civil War. I mean, but we've seen pockets of it. But we see it all kind of powder kegging right now. And the truth is, in our nation, systemic racism has been a thing. And I, I, I hate to admit that because that's something, we don't want that to have been a thing in our country. It's easier to just say, nah, that's just some people's experience. But when I talk to friend after friend after friend and you read story after story after story, you know, the thing about what we talk about this idea is, is, is it's not that people have been blatantly, aggressively against someone else. What's happened is we created systems that didn't take into account the lifestyles, the stories of other people who had a different journey. And that in and of itself is actually not a bad thing. It's really impossible not to do. We can't, we can't build a structure of, of, of government and society and take everybody's story into account especially when you don't, you don't know their story. What we can do is when we recognize that that's been taking place, we can make adjustments, we can make changes. So we have in our nation this covenant, all men are created equal. And we have right now this moment of tragedy and injustice. And I, I wanna start by just saying it's so important that we, we recognize that God's heart is with the downtrodden. God's heart, when it came down to it, he actually sided with the Gibeonites, even though they couched everything in deception, he sided with them because the covenant was broken on Israel's side. It's, that's how important it is to him. So when we look at, at um, even the sin of Sodom, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the idea is, well, they were destroyed because of indecent acts, I will say. But the reality is, it says in Ezekiel, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Now catch this. It's not saying that there was anything wrong with them having excess food or prosperous ease. What it says is they didn't aid the poor and needy. So the first thing I want to say is, is as the body of Christ, we need to see suffering and take action. When we see the, the wounding and the pain of people, it's not our job to sit there and, and say, well, is your pain justified? It's our job to say, what, what is the Spirit saying? What is the Spirit doing? How do we bring life in this situation? All that said, 
I want to bring out some principles that I think are important as we, the body of Christ, minister in this kind of moment. Because this is a pivotal moment, like I said. One of, one of my most, uh, one of the things that I think excites me the most about this moment is actually one of the biggest revivals in history came out of racial reconciliation, out of people coming together in a time when segregation was massively instituted and ingrained in the cultural way of life. And yet, um, I think it was William Seymour, uh, this black preacher, he was Baptist and he got filled with the Holy Spirit and started preaching. And he's drawing together crowds of men and women and children and old people and black people and white people and all coming together, getting set on fire for the, for the love of God. And that kind of unity, that kind of reconciliation, I think I see this moment and I don't see it as, um, as a moment of, of, of uh, destruction. I see it as a moment of potential as a moment where we have an opportunity to say, what would it look like if the church actually came together in this hour? So a couple quick things. In Psalm 73, Psalm 73, uh, the author is writing about basically the injustice of life. And he's saying, I don't know what to do with all of this. He's saying the, the wicked are getting everything they want. And he's saying everything, everything they want, they're getting. And they're not suffering uh, any kind of consequences for their actions. And so he's going through this and he says, um, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And he keeps going and he's like, he doesn't understand it. And then verse 17 happens. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They are utterly consumed. So here's what's interesting. He's talking about all this stuff. He's like, I see this injustice. I see the pain. I see the wicked are not, are not getting what they deserve. And then he says, until I enter the sanctuary of God. When we enter into the place of worship, everything changes. Our perspective shifts. There's actually, I, th I believe that worship is a vehicle that raises our natural mind and our natural, like, what's right in front of us. And it raises us into a mentality of what is God saying? What is God doing? What is, what's happening in heaven right now? And what's, what I love about this is if you read through this whole, this whole um, chapter, by the end of it, he just turns into worship. It just switches completely into worship. So he goes from like, I'm confused, God, why is this happening? Why is the world like this? Then I entered the sanctuary, then I understood, then it's worship. And he's just like, whom have I in heaven and but you? There's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he just worships. So uh, the first thing, guys, is we have to get God's perspective on what's going on. We have to go into the sanctuary. Because right now we see this division and I see, I see almost split down party lines. The people that are, that are in my circles who are super conservative and dabbling in, in conspiracy theories that may or may not have any, any basis in reality. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, I don't know. But you've got people who are angry at the people over here and you've got the people over here who have felt injustice and felt like they've been taken advantage of and felt like they've been abused for years and decades and decades. And they're furious at these people over here. And you've got these sides. And the problem is both of them probably have a point. 
there's probably some some I mean we don't want to see discrimination and racial injustice we also don't want to see our our police officers being you know torn down or, or abused but the problem is when we're facing all of this stuff the only way that we can get the right perspective is by going into the sanctuary this is an uncomfortable topic I will tell you guys I did not want to talk about this today it's not fun it's not my jam but I felt like God was very clearly leading us to go through some principles in, in dealing with this. So principle one, guys, is we have to get God's perspective. We, are not, we can't take our, our mentality from what we're getting from our news sources, from what we're getting from friends and, and family that agree with us, from people that think like us or people that think different than us. We can't, we can't go to the other side and read all the right books and expect that we're going to have the right perspective. We've got to get into the sanctuary of God. We've got to get his view of what's happening in the earth. Um, what I see a lot of right now, and I'm not saying anybody here is doing this, but I think it's so important that we recognize it. There are people that are, that are on both sides of the spectrum right now that are trying to get justice. They feel, you know, I think I, think I see all these people across the spectrum saying what's happening is not just. And they're all kind of pointing the finger at each other. And I think we need to note in Deuteronomy, God says, vengeance is mine. It doesn't mean we don't seek after justice, but we have to seek after his justice. We have to understand what justice actually is. And we seek it in prayer. We have to be diligent in really praying for our nation right now, for our leaders, for, for the families and the societies, for our city here. And then we have to ask the Holy Spirit, what's my role? What is mine to do and what's not mine to do? What's mine to say and what's not mine to say? You know, I have, I have people very close to me on, on all ends of the political spectrum that, that you can see when they're acting out of their own emotion and passion rather than out of what the Holy Spirit is leading. And you can see these posts that are, that are designed to convert other people to the way of thinking but that show no empathy, that show no compassion, that no, show no understanding. And really, ultimately, it's not the heart of our Father. The heart of our Father doesn't bash people over the head if they're wrong. The heart of our Father is not, is not accusatory. And that's the thing. We see these accusations flying both directions. That is the nature of the enemy of our souls. He is called the accuser. And I think we have to recognize when that accusing spirit, when that accusing voice is coming out of our own mouth, or when it's coming out of the mouth of people we love. And how do we, again, not go then accusing them of being accusing, but actually surround with love and empathy and say, look, I understand, but I'm not walking that route. That's not where the Holy Spirit is leading me and how I'm supposed to communicate. The thing is, when we look at both sides, one of the stories I love is the story of the wheat and the tares. And, it, and Jesus is telling this story, and it, he says... The enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, because in gathering the weeds, you might root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What Jesus is saying here, what we need to understand is we don't know always 
what's the wheat and what's the tares? We don't know that uh, sometimes of ideas. We don't know that of people. And I think it's so easy to look at one group of people or one type of person or people with a certain perspective or a certain political mindset or bent and say they're the tares. That they need to go. And, you know, it's funny. We were talking to some friends the other day, and they were talking about they had intercessors in their church, and they would do, like, these, like, prayer assassinations. Like, Lord, just take them out, Lord. Take them out. Just, you know, just imagine, like, these people getting passionate for God to move, and yet the mindset is so off because we don't know. I love the story of Paul. You've got Paul who, if anybody looked at his life, it was obvious what he was. He was not only an enemy of the church, he was, he was the epitome of the destroyer. Like, for all we know, you know, I don't know, for all we know, people are looking at him like, this is the representation of what the devil wants to do to the church. He's going out and, and killing the believers. And yet, God knew that Paul was wheat. And that's why when we talk about what we do with our enemies, Jesus died for us while we were enemies of the cross. He died for us while we were enemies of God. Here's, here's the picture. When we were enemies, he came close. And I think what we see in our culture modeled very often, even in the church, is the people that, that we believe are our enemies, we pull back from. And we distance and we divide. And we see division take root. You know, we, we look at the United States of America and we don't see unity. And so I think it's so important that we, we learn how to, when we have an enemy, that we actually learn how to come close the way that Jesus did. That we learn how to empathize, that we learn how to not, it doesn't mean we justify the things that are happening that are wrong, but it does mean that we say, you know, I may not have the whole story and I'm not going to treat a group of people or an individual based on my, my presumption. I'm going to hear the Holy Spirit and get his perspective and then bring what he tells me to bring. Um, we have to understand our purpose on the earth. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciliation in the Greek means katalage is the word in Greek. And it literally means what happens when a, when a tax person would reconcile the books and they'd, they'd make all the accounts right. But it also means to take from hatred to friendship. And I love that because you look at both sides of those and you're saying there is a measure of justice that takes place when, when there's reconciliation happening. In order for full reconciliation, there does need to be some measure of, of reconciling the books. But at the same time, it's taking from hatred to friendship. And it's saying the, the one who was my enemy is no longer my enemy. And that can't happen when you're on opposite sides of the room. That can't happen when we're not capable of thinking of the other person as potentially right about some things, potentially valid in the pain they're feeling or the way that they're thinking. It doesn't mean that we don't hold strong to our beliefs. It means we don't make the assumption that we understand justice apart from what the Holy Spirit is saying about it. Maya, Maya Angelou, brilliant poet, said love liberates it does not bind love liberates it does not bind and i think that i would i would almost flip that in our society to say where you see people being bound by by others by their words you're not seeing love so that means that when you know in, in a culture that has become very 
interested in shame shouting is the, the word I like to use. It's, it's kind of trying to coerce people into a certain way of acting and thinking and speaking and shaming them if they won't go on board with it. That, that mentality, that is not liberating. Love, that's binding. Love liberates, it does not bind. We have to be careful that we don't speak words that would make it hard for someone to come to Christ if he draws them. I don't want to speak words that would be a barrier for someone if God actually begins moving in their spirit to come to him. And I have to be careful. To, I, I did it just the other day. Literally just the other day. I said words about somebody I should not have. And, and I, I found it and, you know, repented and, and called them and talked to them. But I recognized that because of what I said, I might have put a barrier between them if, if God draws them close and in the forgiveness that they need to experience from him. We have to watch our hearts. Um, last thing I want to say is, is going back to that one verse where it says they did not seek the counsel from the Lord. We need to seek counsel from the Lord before we tie ourselves to say to a, a certain political ideology, to um, certain ideas and mindsets. We really need to seek the counsel of the Lord. I think it's so important that we, that we keep our hearts open to let him move in unique ways in each of the different areas that we're facing, in our families, in the people around us, in the situations. Each one of us is going to be called to operate and move differently in this time. We're not all called to say the same things or do the same things. God has a unique thing on each of us to bring life to the people around us in this season. And so I want to encourage us to find that. Don't base it on what you think you should be doing or what you're hearing other people say you should be doing. Hear the heart of God. If there's anything you guys know about me by now, I am always, always going to direct you to the foot of the cross, to the foot of Jesus, to the heart of God, because that's where you're going to find the next step.